This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. But first off, yesterday, of course, was budget day in the province of Ontario, and we saw health care spending go from $66.7 billion up to $69.8 billion, and we are certainly going to address that, and we're going to do it with the help of the Deputy Premier and Health Minister, Christine Elliott. Minister Elliott, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. A pleasure to join you, Mike. Thank you. Even before we get to yesterday's budget and what that will translate to in healthcare in the province of Ontario, I know that there were a few cases that carried over because of data that couldn't be included yesterday, but we all saw your Twitter feed and heard the announcement that we're up over 2,000 new cases today. What do you look to to account for that sudden rise? Well, I think it's particularly the variants of concern that are out there now, the UK variant particularly, and the uh, South African and Brazilian. They're much more transmissible, and they result in uh, uh, people getting sicker, requiring more hospitalizations, and so on. So our vaccination program is really, it's, we're in a, a race against time to get more needles in arms to, um, to protect people and uh, to try and get these uh, these variants under control. We've even heard the Premier say if you're in a race like that, it's not one that you're going to win. You can't race the virus. What could you do if numbers continue to be this or, I hate to say it, even higher? Well, it's vaccinations are really key, and that's why we have a, a great distribution system for vaccines through mass vaccination clinics, through pharmacies, which are going to be expanding across the province. They're not there right yet, but within the next two weeks, we should have another approximately 350 pharmacies offering vaccines, as well as in primary care offices, doctor's offices, nurse practitioners, and so on. So there's going to be a lot of ways that people can access the vaccine, and I think that's our our best uh, resistance to these variants that are circulating in uh, parts of the province right now. Minister Elliott, there will be those who say the vaccine process should be further along, the program should be further along. When you hear things like that, how do you respond? I would say that uh, we have a great system in place, we have a great booking system, but what we need is supply of vaccines. And that's, we receive them, as you would know, through the federal government. So we had our uh, vaccine supply diminished in uh, February because uh, Pfizer was retooling their plant in Belgium, and that's where we receive our Pfizer vaccines from. So we're ready to go. We can triple or quadruple the number of people being vaccinated every day if we have that vaccine supply. And we expect that to come in within the next several weeks, and um, all, everyone's on deck. To, uh, to do that work, and yesterday we had over 70,000 people vaccinated. So we're increasing rapidly in just several weeks, but what we need are mass quantities of vaccines, and as soon as we have them, they're going directly into people's arms. Are there vaccine supplies on hold right now, just waiting for the, the ramp-up? We've heard that you don't want to ramp up and then have to ramp back down. No, no. We uh, we are using our vaccines uh, as soon as we get them because we know that even with the first dose that provides significant coverage and, and um, help to people. So we are not holding on to vaccines until we uh, get geared up. We're, we are already geared up. We just need more vaccines to come in. 
Deputy Premier and Health Minister Christine Elliott joining us. Minister Elliott, what's the biggest thing you want Ontarians to take away from yesterday's budget when it comes to health care? That uh, we are doing everything that we can to protect the health and safety of every Ontarian, and we're sparing no expense in order to do that. We have increased uh, our health spending significantly, both in terms of dealing with COVID. Uh, we've given, uh, granted our hospitals a 3.4% interest to, get, to deal with COVID and other patients, but we know that there are p- other people out there that have had their surgeries delayed or procedures delayed for um, almost a year in some cases, and so we are also putting significant money into the budget, over $300 million more dollars, uh, in addition to several hundred million that we had already put in before, uh, about a half a billion dollars now to deal with the backlog of surgeries and procedures that people have been waiting for. And we, uh, we want to make sure that people are aware that we, we're not forgetting about them either, that we know that people have been waiting for hip and knee replacements, cataract surgeries, cardiac surgeries in some cases, and that we are dealing with that as well. So we're not leaving anyone behind in our healthcare plan. Let's talk surgeries in just a moment, but if we look just prior to the start of the pandemic and we look at the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario, they listed Ontario's healthcare spending per person as the lowest of any of the 10 provinces. So we know that more money has been put in healthcare, but how much of that is just catch up? How much of that is actually helping? Well, actually, this is a new record level that we're putting into healthcare. The Ontario Hospital Association uh, is very pleased with the money they're receiving, and they have been really center to our efforts in dealing with COVID in terms of taking care of COVID patients, uh, but other people that are requiring surgeries. But they've also been helping out in long-term care homes that have been having problems. Uh, in the past, fortunately, that seems to be largely under control now. And they're, of course, uh, leaders in our vaccination efforts, too. So we want to support our hospitals as well as the, uh, the wonderful healthcare professionals that are there on the front lines as well doing the, uh, the incredible work in, in caring for people. And they have been doing that work essentially around the clock every day of the week since this started. And we're starting to hear from whether it's the Nurses Association or whether it's different union members that we've got serious burnout here and we've got serious staffing shortages. What do we do about that? Well, we certainly appreciate the work that's being done by all of our frontline healthcare professionals because they've been working for over the last year, you know, putting putting themselves in jeopardy in some cases and and not seeing their families. And we know there is significant burnout that they are uh, they are tired, and so we're really working to boost our our uh, human resources in healthcare, both in terms of nurses. We've provided uh, significant money for our nursing graduate guarantee program to bring more new nurses into the system. We've invested money to hire um, 800 more nurses. And we also have a a nursing uh, internship program where as nurses are training, uh, they have a certain amount of hours they have to put into their training program, but we're also outside of that paying them to come into our hospitals to assist with care. Uh, practicing, of course, under the supervision of registered nursing professionals. 
So we, we certainly hear their needs. We know that they need assistance, and we know that we need more healthcare professionals, both in our hospitals and, of course, in long-term care, because we've also made the commitment to the people of Ontario that we will be providing four hours of direct care to residents of long-term care as well. Now, are, are we seeing those bodies now coming into the system, or are we still waiting for that? No, we are seeing bodies coming into the system, and we're also investing in in training more personal support workers that are really critical in long-term care, hospital care, and home and community care. So this is, uh, we do have a health human resources strategy to, um, to significantly increase the supply of our nurses, uh, registered practical nurses, personal support workers, and others. We're talking with the Minister of Health and Deputy Premier Christine Elliott. Minister Elliott, there has been concern, and this goes back before the pandemic, about privatization and the idea that we're now seeing pharmacies brought in more and more. We're seeing lab testing done on a private basis. And the question is, okay, where else is privatization going to go? What can you tell us? No, we are committed to our publicly run system of health care. That is the central facet of all of the work that we've been doing uh, throughout this pandemic. What we've done in terms of bringing uh, pharmacists in and allowing nurses to do some of the vaccinations is really to make sure that we have the health professionals available to do the mass vaccinations that we need to have done. So we need thousands of health professionals to be able to do that. That's just to really to get us through this vaccination program, which is the, the, the biggest program I think Ontario has probably ever seen. So we, uh, we value the contributions that all of our health professionals are making, but we are also firmly committed to our publicly funded system of health care, our public system. Minister Elliott, just one more thing, and you had mentioned surgeries before. That's certainly a, an item that anybody waiting for a surgery, a hip replacement like you mentioned, or a knee surgery is wondering about. And we know the backlog exists in so many hospitals, and we know why it exists, but we've heard that surgeries could be pushed later at night. Is that something that, that we can expect in the next little while? Yes, and that has been happening actually for a number of months already. That we that's part of the uh, half a billion dollars that we're putting into uh, the system to deal with these surgeries and procedures is to allow them to operate um, into the evening and on weekends. And we're also taking a really a regional approach to dealing with some of these surgeries. So, for example, if you have a hospital that is uh, specializes in cardiac surgeries, they can work on some of that backlog, but they may also have uh, a huge wait list for orthopedic procedures because of that. What we're doing now is maintaining a provincial and, and regional wait list so that those surgeries, those orthopedic surgeries, can now be done at another hospital. So we're really looking at maximizing all of our resources to make sure that people can get these surgeries done as quickly as possible. Minister Elliott, we really appreciate your time today. Please keep safe. Uh, you, you as well. Thank you so much for having me on, Mike. Take care. That is the Deputy Premier and Minister of Health, Christine Elliott. So we tried to cover as many different things as we could and get answers on as many things as we could. You know what we haven't been able to talk about in a long time? CFL football. 
We have not been able to talk CFL football. Other than updating, the league is having some kind of conversation with the XFL. That was big news. And the idea that the league is still trying to play. Well, we've got a CFL draft in the near future. And one of the top prospects on the defensive side of the ball just happens to play for the Western Mustangs and just happens to be with us right now. Austin Fordham Miller. Austin, how are things? Hey, how's it going, Mike? You know what? It's it's not going too too bad at all. It just it feels good to be able to talk some football and think CFL football or think Western Mustang football. What got you growing up? What got you into the game? Honestly, my stepfather is uh I was probably eight or nine years old when my stepfather brought home a uh, a pamphlet for the uh, Chatham Kent Cougars uh, travel team there in Blenheim, and uh, <laughs> he, we just decided to sign me up. And man, that was in 2007, I want to say. And the game's kind of been there for you ever since. Oh yeah, it, it's every year, year after year. <laughs> Parents had to drive me out to uh, the games when I was younger, and then I <laughs> started traveling across the country as uh, I started getting better and better at the game. So, You've got a great football physique. You've got a physique that says defensive line right here. Did you always have that? Were you always a guy who, hey, I can go and play football and, uh, and have the size to deal with the physicality that comes with it? Yeah, I've I've always been rather tall, especially when I was younger. Uh, they actually put me at a Wildcat QB my first few years, and then I kind of started eating a lot more, and then they kind of put me on the uh, defensive side of the ball. So I didn't <laughs> mind that one bit. Now, playing quarterback, is that something that helped you understand the game? Do you look back and say, hey, that was a great place to start? <laughs> I, I don't know so much about that. I, I think it was just uh, some peewee bantam fun back then, and there were, there was really no future as the QB of the team. But uh, <laughs> the man tackling him, that, <laughs> that's where I was shone. Now, there are players who will say, and for whatever reason, you know, you know where you belong, offensive side of the ball, defensive side of the ball, they don't mind getting hit, or there are guys who say, no, no, I got to be the guy doing the hitting. Sounds like you need to be the guy doing the hitting. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I don't mind being in the spotlight a few times, which, you know, quarterbacks and offensive side of the ball get a lot of, uh, you know, I just can't stand, stand around and let someone hit me. I, I got to run out and hit someone. <laughs> we are talking with Austin Fordham Miller, talking about the upcoming CFL draft. He is one of the top prospects rated going into the draft. When did you maybe realize that a pro career was a possibility? Probably early high school. Uh, I early high school was when I, uh, you know, I entered in. Uh, I, I didn't go. To the academic level right away and uh we were talking with a actually a an academy at the time it was and uh they kind of mentioned that you know if i wanted to go you know university ball then i would have to get you know academic level so i really started pushing myself and really started focusing on my studies and my schoolwork and uh at that point i knew like 
if I wanted any chance in the professional league, I would have to, you know, start early and start in high school. What a great story. The idea that you had to push yourself academically to succeed in a sport. <laughs> Absolutely. It, like my first year I was, uh, I was in Blenheim district high school actually. And, uh, all my courses were relatively easy. I didn't push myself academically. And then grade 10 was when I got the wake-up call, like, hey, you know, if you want to play football down in the States or up here in Canada, you're going to have to do something about those academics. And that was that was scary. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was able to push through it and make sure that my academics were as good as they are right now. Well, that that is tremendous. I love that story. Okay, then you get to university ball. How has your university career gone, I guess, before this past year? Honestly, it, it, it's been improving year after year. My first year here, it, it feels a, like a different game, but it only feels like a different game because everything is much faster. People hit a lot harder, and... It, it, you have to exert a lot more energy than you did in high school. Other than that, if you can keep up and you can keep improving, like I've been playing football since I was eight or nine years old. I'm still learning new things to this very day. You got to keep improving and you got to keep refining the skills that you, that you've learned over the years. When you think back now, think back to grade nine, not going into university level courses right away and you know not necessarily knowing where you would wind up think about where you are right now within reach of a university degree and ranked in the cfl draft what do you think your grade nine self would have said about that if you said you know where you're going to be this you're going to be doing this what would your grade nine self have said to you honestly (laughs) if it wasn't for football i don't even think you would even begin to dream about anything like that. Honestly, football has opened up so many doorways, so many paths for me that, like, it's incomprehensible uh, incomprehensible that my path self could even imagine or even begin to think of. Austin Ford and Miller joining us as we talk CFL Draft, which is coming up, one of the top-rated prospects. Austin, as we close out, obviously this past year, you haven't been able to play football. You haven't been able to play in games. How have you been able to get through this? (laughs) Hitting the gym a lot, as much as uh, possible, and going on uh, long runs with the dogs and trying to get in some uh, field work uh, at any <laughs> any grass that you can find honestly it's as a team we we, we kind of got to be responsible and take that responsibility of you know trying to stay away and social distance from one another but at the same time we got to be we got to be a unit we got to be a team so we got to get some form of you know training in whether it's one or two people social distance at a time uh at you know, a local park or uh, just some random patch in the grass to get some field work in. It's, it's been tough, but, you know, we've definitely been working through it. And uh, <laughs> we've definitely seen uh, some improvement, but it, it's been difficult. 
Well, Austin, your story is only going to continue from here. So thanks for sharing it up to this point, and we'll pay close attention to what happens come CFL draft time. And here's hoping the CFL can have itself a season, and uh, maybe, just maybe, you can be a part of it at some point in the very near future. So thanks so much for the time today. It's been great chatting with you, and keep safe. Absolutely. You as well, Mike. Thank you. That right there is one of the top football players in this area. That's Austin Fordham Miller of the Western Mustangs. So the CFL has not announced its exact draft date. They're still aiming spring of 2021. Well, here we are. They're still waiting to work on you know, how their season will go, and they don't have an agreement with the provincial government either, just like the Ontario Hockey League doesn't. Uh, they don't have an agreement with their provincial governments or with the federal government right now in terms of how everything would take place. So they still need to get all of that sort of stuff done. So the Argos and the Ticats will be talking more with our provincial government on return to play. and They're still aiming for mid-June. The spring food drive is getting underway, and that's that's actually something that is encouraging to hear, not just because it gives this community a chance to do what we do best, but it also gives us an opportunity to say that word spring over and over again. But there's a little bit more to this year's announcement about the spring food drive, and we get an opportunity right now to talk with Jane Roy from the London Food Bank. Jane, how are things? You know, I really agree with that. Spring, wow, it's it's wonderful outside right now, isn't it? It is absolutely phenomenal. I know that John Wilson is promising it's maybe some snow on Saturday, but let's not worry about that. Let's let's live in the present. Let's live in today, and let's focus in on some things that are going on even before we get to the spring food drive. Jane, last week we were able to talk with Glenn Pearson, and he was able to tell us that this year you have had such generous cash donations from people in this area. It provided some unique opportunities that now have come to fruition. What sorts of things are happening above and beyond the spring food drive that you can tell us about? Yeah, you know, so I, I think what one of the things that we're talking about last week was, was the greenhouse and just, you know, the focus on the fresh and the growing has been one of the new programs that's been going and, and getting going, and that's been amazing. Um, the other big one that we announced today was the whole idea of the London Food Bank going mobile. And, you know, we're out in the community collecting donations, but now we're talking about being out in the community distributing food to people who need it. Um, so we're partnering with, you know, the resource centers across the city. We're partnering with the Y um, in terms of some locations. And the whole idea is it's kind of like your neighborhood food depot, but it's like a food bank visit. So we're we're getting out in the community, and we're, we're actually we're, we're really excited about that. And that's because Londoners have been just so, so very generous. Jane, was this one of those things that maybe has been talked about for a while, but you need resources, you need partnerships to do it? Or was this one of those things that this past year has kind of created a need for? You know, we have been talking about this for a long time, and there are some small depots out in different different neighborhoods already, um, you know, once a month where you're actually able to go. But, you know, a lot of those depots, you know, we don't distribute, like, fresh milk, frozen 
um, frozen meat, uh, fresh produce because of food safety. So we've, we've been talking about this for years in part, be, you know, one of the main reasons is, is the resources um, because those partnerships, those folks have to be able to run it. It takes a lot with regards to people resources, food resources, and then the advent of a centralized you know, database system is incredibly important as well so that, you know, you can still go to um, the food bank, let's say on one day, but a centralized database will make sure that, you know, somebody who's gone to a different location, that's like their food bank visit. So we're able to track where everybody goes and we're able to actually help them like once a month. Um, and wow. and that's, that's, that centralized database has made all the difference in the world. So it almost acts as, as a checkup. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, it acts as a checkup. You know, and with regards, it's it's a system called Link to Feed. But with regards to the resource centers, you know, they're actually able to do a lot more than just give food. Um, so what we're really excited about there is actually able to address some of the root causes of poverty. They can refer people to places. They've got a lot of their own programs. And what we're really excited about the why is it increases access to food at times when most of us are closed. So people who are facing you know, food insecurity, generally most of the food banks or food hamper type agencies are like Monday to Friday, nine to four um, during the day. But let's say you happen to work or you're in school and it's very difficult. The, the advent of the WISE allows for a Saturday or staying open until six o'clock. So that in, increases the access as well. And so we're, again, we're just kind of excited about that. So how, Jane, is that going to work if someone was making use of the YMCA? Would there be a place at the Y that you go to? Yeah, so what we're going to do with the Ys is have it appointment-based. So if somebody needs help and wants to go to the Y, they'll call them. They'll take the information. They'll get the appointment um, and in terms of a time. And so we'll know the size of family. And so in the morning, then we ship the food to them. Um, so we're not going to open up on the Ys until the first week of June, I think it's June 7th, because we're in the midst of organizing all of that. Um, the Ys have got the capacity, they've got the staff, the volunteers, they've got the fridges and the freezers, um, but we don't want them to be like a food bank where we just you know, drop food off all the time. We'll know who's coming and then we'll send the food specifically um, each time that they're open. The resource centers will all be a little bit different. It might be a food truck if they have no space, but the resource center in the South London, for instance, they're going to be doing their own hampers. They're opening up um, May 3rd and basically it's every afternoon and it's a, it's, it's drop-in. So if you need help, you can, you drop in there. Um, So every, neighborhood is going to have their own kind of unique situation. We're talking with Jane Roy from the London Food Bank about some new initiatives, whether it is mobility for the food bank, whether it is a partnership with the YMCA. And Jane, we also get to talk about the spring food drive and the kickoff of the spring food drive. And when you dig into some statistics, I mean, look at last year, 32,783 hampers of emergency food, almost 90,000 people helped. When you look at those numbers, how do you perceive them? You know, um, that, that's at the food bank. That's that's a lot when you hear about it. But what I also think of is Londoners' generosity. Londoners gave enough food, enough money, enough money for food to actually help all of those people and create all of those hampers. Um, when, you know, we're a year into COVID and when a, 
last spring food drive, we actually had to, we didn't cancel it, but it became totally virtual. And Londoners just gave. They gave like crazy in terms of um, money. And they've consistently given from, you know, that time until now. The business community has been amazing. Business Cares over Christmas raised more money than they've ever raised before. Um, and that all allows us to help all of those families and do all of those hampers. And, and so, yes, it gets discouraging on one side when you think of all the people that need help, but it's really encouraging when you think of the fact that Londoners are really stepping up and coming through. Jane, let's talk about how this year is going to be done in the spring food drive. What sorts of things do we need to know that maybe are a little different than they would usually be, say, not even last year's spring food drive? I know changes were being made then, but pre-pandemic, it almost sounds like we keep saying prehistoric. I keep expecting to talk about dinosaurs walking around, but it almost feels like that right now. So what do we need to know about the way that we can donate? So... The, normally during this time, we would be there'd be a bag in the pit, London Free Press, and we'd be asking people to fill it up and drop it off at a grocery store or a fire hall. What's different again this year is the focus on um, if this is a virtual food drive. So, you know, go to our website, make a donation, make a virtual donation, and we'll turn that into food. The one big change from a year ago is that you know, grocery, we're a lot more able to handle the food and quarantine it if somebody wants to make a donation. And almost all of the grocery stores now have their bins back up for us and are collecting food. So the primary way to give is, is virtual is to give us monetary donations. Um, best way to do that is through the website, or people can make donations at the grocery stores if they would prefer. Jane, if you think back over this past year, what's it been like? Oh, my goodness. Um, that That's a really good question. It's been kind of crazy. Um, it's been everything from, um, just managing sleep and energy because people have been so generous. Um, I remember the first, uh, the first weekend of the food drive from last year and the first thing of COVID and my email blew up because people, when people made financial donations, they would also come into my inbox. So from a Friday to a Monday, all of a sudden I had 3,000 emails of people making donations. It was it was hmm. amazing. Um, it's been exciting because we've been talking about change, but of course it's still been very discouraging in the context of there's there's so many people who the pandemic and being home has been has been really difficult for them. Um, and so these partnerships in ourselves that uh, you know we want to do whatever we can. Um, we we put the we never closed at the food bank. We changed how we operated. We put staff into cohorts. We limited the number of volunteers, which was which we didn't really want to do, but we had to because of the pandemic. And people really stepped up. So I I get so encouraged in many ways when I think back. But it has been exhausting for sure. Well, Jane, job well done and continued job well done. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on everything and enjoy that spring sunshine and being able to say the words spring food drive. Stay safe. No, that's awesome. Thank you very much, too, Mike. Really appreciate it. That's Jane Roy from London Food Bank. If you look at the breakdown as far as age group by person, uh, when we look at who made use of the food bank this year, 40% were 18 or under. 40%. 22% were between the ages of 19 and 35. 30% were 36 to 59. And 8% were 60 and over. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 